This week, we continue our conversation with Jess Cataret. Jess is an environmental advocate who currently serves as the field director for the Conservation Voters of Pennsylvania, the statewide political voice for the environment. Last week, we discussed the environmental issues that we face as a society, as well as the ways that we can begin to make a difference through advocacy and sustainability. She also shared about her personal journey into environmentalism, so we recommend starting there as an introduction for this episode. This week, Jess courageously reflects on her experience with Crohn's disease and shares the many important lessons it taught her about life and health. We discuss the importance of caring for not only our physical and mental health, but also our spiritual health. This leads to a conversation around engaged Buddhism, mindfulness, self-advocacy, and making the most of every moment. To close the episode, in honor of Women's History Month, Jess delivers some powerful advice for women in their 20s looking to make a difference in the world. We hope you enjoy this episode of Discover More with us and Jess Cataret. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. I think what I wasn't ready for was afterwards, was the really intense mental and emotional struggle that I experienced. And so though, while my Crohn's got better within three or four years, thanks to Western medicine and and some really great medicines that I take, I did not, I still was not prepared to really, even though I was giving my body the attention it needed, was not prepared or had the tools. You know, I, I wonder what world, what a different world we'd live in if we taught in school things like caring for your mental health or caring for your spirit. I wonder what kind of world we live in if we did that. And unfortunately we don't. And so oftentimes in light of the conversations we're having today, oftentimes we're forced to in a reactive way. And so I was really struggling after Crohn's. I I thought maybe I was narcoleptic. I kept falling asleep in places. I thought, you know, I had a lot of racing thoughts. I had some, you know, ways that I was, negatively coping with the psychological aftermath of such trauma to the body. Um, You know, I'm happy to say I'm in remission from Crohn's today, but not only did that experience force me to realize the necessary need, the like absolutely vital need to care for your body and listen to what it needs, but also it forced me in the aftermath to really take care of myself. And I, um, While I resisted it my whole life, I swear by therapy. I think that in this society, and especially here in America, we are just go, 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 go. You got to keep going. You got to keep doing. And I think there's really something to be said for really making the space and dedicating the time for looking inward and taking care of yourself. I also was not raised religiously. And, you know, I think faith can be a wonderful thing. I think it's helped so many people. I have qualms with organized religion and I think unfortunately sometimes even if the root if or if religions are you know based in love I think too often 
we've seen negative impacts of organized religion. I personally found my path in Buddhism. And so that really helped me and was kind of the trifecta to keeping peace with my body, mind and spirit. And it's what's helped me through my career, because if you're actively trying to help a piece of the world, it can be heartbreaking, whether the change is slow or the issue that you're dealing with, right? Whether you're a frontline worker and caring for folks dealing from COVID-19 or whether you're trying to fight for racial justice that we so desperately need. And it's hard to believe that um, our country is still reckoning with this, but we haven't truly done the work we need to fully reckon with it. No matter what you're working on, you have to take care of yourself you will not continue right you have to create a sustainable way forward for yourself and so I truly thank Crohn's disease in a way forcing me through this path that helped me to realize at an early age that taking care of your body and taking care of your mind and your spirit are incredibly important and what, no matter what that means for you, it really is in order to continue whatever great path you're meant to on this planet, I think that that will be fulfilled 10 times over if you can really dedicate yourself to those three things and keeping them sustained and healthy. Absolutely, Jess. I love that for so many reasons. I mean, first and foremost, you sharing so openly and vulnerably about such a complex health issue, I think... Those, like we alluded to earlier, stories speak louder than normal words. And that story really shines a light on so many of the things that you illustrated. I mean, I really want to drill home that idea of you have to take care of yourself first. That's definitely a tough lesson that I had to learn over the course of the years of always trying to, as you said, do, 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 just kind of like always getting the next thing done or even like serve, 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 like help out people you care about. I think there's always just... You know, it is an individualistic society, but still it's like individualistic in a siloed way where we're still sometimes not taking care of ourselves. And I think that's such an important lesson to pass around to people. It's a kind of stereotypical, maybe cliche uh, analogy to give for it, but it's like the oxygen mask analogy on the airplane. Like yeah. <laughs> you always have to put your oxygen mask on first before you can help anyone else. So I think that really trickles in from that airplane analogy into everyday life. You have to take care of your own mental well-being, physical well-being, and lastly, spiritual well-being, which is really kind of what I'd like to ask you a little bit more about. You alluded to engaged Buddhism on your questionnaire and mentioned kind of Buddhist ideas. I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit, because I think a lot of people are familiar with the, everyone knows that you should exercise, move your body, eat vegetables, eat fruits, like just have a good balanced diet and mental health. Like you alluded to, we should all be going to therapy. We should all be journaling or like whatever works for each specific person. You should be doing that to take care of your mental health. But I think spiritual health is one that isn't talked about a whole ton. And just on your experience and the way you've talked about it, I'd love to hear how you think about spiritual health, because that we've alluded mind and body are sometimes segmented, but sometimes spiritual well-being just isn't even in the conversation. So I'd love to hear your thoughts around spiritual well-being. Yeah, certainly. I think when you talk about, when you talk to people about caring for your mind, caring for your body, we can all kind of list some things of what that looks like. I think caring for your spirit is equally important. And, and I don't, you know, you can use whatever words you want to use for it, caring for your soul, caring for your, the true you, whatever it may be. You know, for some people, 
that's faith, that's their religion, that's their, you know, Christianity brings that for them, Judaism brings that for them, Islam brings that for them. For myself, I I did follow some paths. I was at one point in my life, I participated in young life in high school, right? I like found God once upon a time. I, you know, and I, I respect whatever people believe in. My personal belief is, I, I just think it's so much, the universe is like so vast and I don't know I can't imagine this happened on accident but I think that life energy I, I don't know what to call it yet but for me it's like life force life energy I feel like is driving a lot of what's in our lives and I think respecting that and having reverence for that is really important whether it's life energy that brings you life your loved one's life your future kids life right I think you know, making sure that you fill your soul and your spirit in a way that brings you to respect that. Whatever way that might be, I'm down for it. You know, the path that I found personally, like I said, I've struggled with anxiety. I had quite a busy mind. So my spiritual path started in a small meditation group at Franklin and Marshall when I was taking a, doing a few years of college there. And that was really my introduction to Buddhism, which is considered less of a religion and, and more of a practice, right? It's more about how you bring yourself into the world and how you, how you act day to day. And I'm certainly no expert. And so this is just my experience. And, but my understanding of Buddhism is for years, a lot of it was about being, and there was this ultimate goal for many of, of becoming a bodhisattva or a monk, right? And kind of you know, just meditating and being still and having this non-attachment to life. The idea of engaged Buddhism came about when my experience and my learnings when, you know, in recent history, when humanity seems to be suffering so much, many of the problems at our own hands, right? The idea of engaged Buddhism is, is yes, like bringing Buddhist practice to your life, but also like in all things you do and, and having a bit of a more engaged level of interaction with it, meaning, you know, the goal necessarily might not be for you to meditate for hours on end or become this scholarly Buddhist sitting in your ways and appreciating life from afar, but really trying to bring your Buddhist practices to the forefront and really becoming an active player in bringing about the peaceful life that we know we deserve and is possible. Of course, suffering is always a part of life and that is one of the critical tenets of Buddhism, but a lot of the suffering on today's planet is caused by human hands and that suffering is undue suffering right suffering yes will always come through life we will always get sick we will always uh, our lives will pass um unfortunate circumstances will always happen but a lot of the things we're suffering from in today's damn age are undue suffering <laughs> we're bringing it to ourselves right or um or our fellow humans and i personally got engaged with a Zen Buddhist practice with Thich Nhat Hanh, and I found a Sangha in media that I was meeting with. I eventually traveled to the um, Blue Cliff Monastery in New York and spent a retreat there where I was grateful enough to receive the five mindfulness trainings. And so this is the ways that I feed my spirit, right? Again, it could look different for every, anyone. And and I respect and encourage anyone to follow the spiritual path they need to, to feed your spirit. And I think for me, nature does that first and foremost, right? The environment ultimately is what helps feel, feed my spirit, so to speak. 
but the five mindfulness trainings just kind of bring a broader awareness to a lot of actions in life. And so the five mindfulness trainings, the first is reverence for life. And the second is true happiness. The third is true love. Fourth is loving speech and deep listening. And the fifth is nourishment and healing. And I'd be happy to to send you a link on what, what they say about each of those. But ultimately, it's just it's really just about bringing an awareness to each of those pieces, finding what that means for you and searching it out intentionally in your life. And each day really bringing about, rather than just becoming follower at your job and doing this day in and day out and doing your nine to five and coming home and turning on the TV, right? Becoming this active, engaged force in your life and feeding what we've termed the spirit in the English language. I think, I don't know, I sometimes have qualms with that word, but I haven't found a better one for it. If you have suggestions, let me know. But I do think it's a key piece, right? It's your mind, your body, but then there's this also key piece of, of your soul and how you interact and carry yourself in the world. And um, that's been my path. And that's what's helped me. You know, I have my meditation altar that I visit every day and I think in whatever ways you can be feeding your own self and the ways that you believe and feel about the universe I think as long as you're caring for that third part of yourself I think it will ultimately serve you so great in the long run and those around you yeah definitely I appreciate you sharing because mindfulness and meditation is definitely something that we talk a ton about on the show I think that's like one of my most hailed personal routines is just sitting every morning like I can't do anything before I meditate in a lot of ways but really the perspective that you're bringing around it I think is even more so fascinating of bringing that meditation mindfulness practice like into everyday life Um, I was wondering if we could just go down this tunnel a little bit of like more tangibly is it like looking for the healing element are you looking for those five meditation practices in the energy you bring into everyday life like looking for the opportunity for i think the fifth one was like peace and healing in the everyday circumstances just a little more tangibly of like what that looks like for you of course I yeah mean, yeah no let's talk about it i'm i'm with you so first of all i love i love your meditation practice that's great i think meditation freaks people out sometimes i'm not sure why <laughs> No one could ever sit there with nothing in their mind for <laughs> forever, um, for hours on end. But the idea with meditation is just spending, my idea at least, of meditation is is spending some of that time, and I'm sure you've talked about it a ton on the show, of looking internally and just kind of becoming aware of your own thoughts. And that allows you to really get to know yourself on a deeper level. But in terms of bringing it to the next step, sure, maybe you sit for 20 minutes a day, but... But what about the rest of the things you do with your day? Are you doing them mindfully? Are you thinking deeply about what's happening while it's happening? Or is your mind somewhere else? Or are you trying to do five things at once? And the idea is that, one, if you bring yourself and your awareness to what you're doing, you'll probably do it better and bring more satisfaction to yourself while doing it, right? But for example, like, so a tangible example for from the five mindfulness training. So the fifth one is called nourishment and healing. So this is about bringing awareness to what are you putting in your body, not just food, actually. It's really interesting. I want to bring it up and read part of the five mindfulness trainings for you. The idea is that you will practice looking deeply into how you consume the four nutriments, mainly edible foods, sense impressions, 
volition and consciousness. And so this is not just about bringing awareness to what you physically put in your body, but what conversations do you take part in? What TV do you watch? What websites do you visit? What are you scrolling an Instagram feed that is filled with like negativity and weird and like things that are sparking negative thoughts for yourself? Or like, are you creating the environment around you that will continue to feed you and your spirit? And so the other ones, I think tangibly, right? If you're looking at reverence for life, this has a lot to do with um, a lot of folks take it very seriously with their diet and like follow a vegan diet because they revere life. You know, the true happiness training speaks a lot to not only trying to ensure your own happiness, but trying to ensure others as well and making sure you're aware of social injustices. You're not actively taking parts of systems of oppression. And in today's day and age, I would take that a step further. I think a lot of us, of course, are probably against oppression, but I think that often you really need to take an anti-oppressive stance, especially in the light of this right racial reckoning, right? It's not enough to not be racist. You have to be anti-racist to help take down these systems that have harmed our fellow humans for far too long. You know, I think if you're interested, certainly this is just one piece of Buddhism. The five mindfulness trainings come from Thich Nhat Hanh and he has his entire teachings online. And a lot of his books have been what have sparked my, my own spiritual revolution, so to speak. But to answer your question, like just taking, even washing the dishes, you can do mindfully right? And almost using anything in your life as a meditative practice. And that doesn't mean sitting there and breathing silently through it. It just means like bringing yourself fully into the moment. We know the past doesn't exist any longer. The future is not here yet. Literally the only thing that matters right now, right here is where you are. And are you using that moment of yours to the best of your ability? Are you fully here in that moment? Are you fully enjoying or Maybe it's not enjoying it. Maybe it's just fully feeling the negative feelings you're having. Are you cooking dinner and like thinking about the smells coming from it and all of the things that came? One of my favorite practices of all times, Aiden, is mindfulness eating. Like when you're eating a dish, are you thinking about all the things that went into that dish? Are you thinking about like the farmers that farmed that food and the sun that made those that food possible and the rain that helped grow those plants, right? There's so much packed into every moment. Too often, we're so caught up in our own minds and our own worries of the past or our anxieties of the future that we're not able to be here and now. I'll be 30 this year, so I'm not, you know, I, I can't say I'm an expert on this, but I feel as though so often I hear older people going, oh, life went by me like that. You know, just so quickly, all of a sudden, my family's grown and there's my life. And I would bet money that maybe they weren't able to be as present in their life as they could have or should have ideally. And so I would hope that, you know, anyone that's seeking a meditation regimen in their life, you know, it's not about just sitting and being mindful in that moment, which is important and will, will absolutely bring great positive changes to your life, but making sure that you're bringing that awareness to almost everything that you do, which is hard. It's so hard. And I'm not saying it's easy. It's so hard in today's day and age. We have so many things coming at us that our ancestors never had to deal with billboards, ads, TV. We've got it. We're hammered from it on all angles, but really trying to make sure that you're bringing awareness to the present moment is a big piece of it. 
Yeah, very much so on so many levels. And I think it's really such an important conversation to be had because like you said, that we are inundated with information always happening. I mean, I'm as guilty as the next person of like wanting to listen to a podcast while I'm eating the food. But I think it brings like an appreciation for everything that goes into it. And it almost becomes like a celebratory act of like enjoying the food that you prepared, everything that went into it. It's almost like honoring all of the ingredients and the process of it all. And then the idea of, I guess, having a lot of memories for a long period of time, like life passing you by, I think, as you kind of alluded to it. And I just want to unpack that a little bit because I've been thinking a little bit about that recently of from what I've read and learned is that memories are often created when you have different sensory inputs at the same time, like a vast scene or a smell that's overwhelming you or like you hear like a music festival that's just absolutely out of this mind. But really that combination of senses is what kind of creates memories to reminisce on so long ago. I think there's a reason why we all have those powerful memories from years ago but really what you're alluding to is by being present in the moment of whatever you're doing by engaging all of the senses in maybe it's something as simple as washing the dishes as you mentioned but you can almost create more memories by putting more of your senses into those things and then that automatically allows life to kind of stand out a lot more as you alluded to easier said than done for sure but i really just point out the ethos of that of kind of bringing all of your senses to whatever it is you're doing. And that ultimately creates more memories that you can kind of look back on and celebrate at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. You know, personally, memories have been, it's really challenging for me for whatever reason. Don't worry, I'm, my therapist and I have been working on it for some time now. But for whatever reason, I have a really hard time remembering just about anything. And it used to break my heart. I used to wonder, what's going to happen when I'm older? Am I... Am I going to be able to remember my life? Like, why is this like this? You know, I would not doubt it's because I have a hyperactive brain. I think there's a lot going on at one time. And I think being really mindful in the past several years has really helped me to exactly to your point. You know, so I can't, as a scientist, like say that's true, but it feels true for me at least, right? By being more present and taking in more of the present moment has definitely helped me form better concrete memories. I think it's a blessing and a curse. I, you know, it breaks my heart that I can't really remember a whole lot often, but in a way it has actually really helped me focus on the here and now and remember that that's what's important. Like right now is the only thing that exists and we're grateful to even be experiencing it, right? Any one of us could have not woken up today, but here we are breathing life, breathing air, super grateful to be here and, and to be connecting on such great topics. I think you're absolutely right that being able to do that will will definitely help not people just experience life fuller, but be able to look back on it in a stronger fashion, for sure. I'm a Christian myself, and I, I do think that what truly separates Buddhism as a religion or as an entity versus like Christianity practices, I think there are more Buddhism is more grounded on the idea of habitual practice. In Buddhism, correct me if I'm wrong, because I never study in depth about the religion as a whole, but you're not necessarily worshiping an entity. Like you're not worshiping Buddha compared to like, you know, Muslim and Christianity, you worship Allah or you worship God according to our faith. But with Buddhism, your intention isn't to put Buddha on a, literally on a pedestal, but you're trying to be more like him through the being aspect, which I think is pretty special. And I do respect Muslim in that sense, because like a lot of Muslims, they have a lot of very, a rigorous and disciplined approach and practices throughout their life to 
help elevate but also anchor their faith, which I really respect a lot. Uh, but I do believe that Buddhism is special because it's more on the being versus the doing. And on that sense, even with Christianity, the entire premise of Christianity is not about earning forgiveness, right? Like, I don't know how much you know about Christianity, but it's not about earning forgiveness, but it's about the fact that we just have to receive Jesus. And in that sense, it's also not about doing. There's nothing we can do as quote unquote sinners or quote unquote human beings to earn our way into salvation, but then salvation is given and we just have to be receptive towards that, which is also on the being aspect in that sense, but most Christians don't view it that way. I share that with you because I think you, among with a lot of different guests we on this show, had a lot of tremendously difficult and arduous journeys growing up. You've had a very difficult, both in terms of physical health and mental health, in terms of your upbringings. And that's the reason why I asked you about patience earlier, because I feel like just reading about your bio, doing research and hearing about your context, you give off this impression that you're incredibly patient. The fact that you're able to stay in the politics and advocacy around for so long to become a field director also talks about you have this inherited tendency to be more patient. So like, how would you advise like yourself in hindsight and in retrospect, because it's always hindsight 2020, to instill the stillness, to instill the habitual practices of engaged Buddhism that you so much not only practice, but you also preach. Um, how would you apply that onto yourselves looking back and some of your most arduous upbringings growing up? Wow, it's a good one, Ben. I think we all wish we could go back in time and hug our former selves and give them some advice, right? I certainly do wish that I could go back in time to a younger self of mine and you know, impart some of what I've learned. That being said, at the same time, in a lot of the places that I am, whether it's my sangha or whether it's in the field that I work in, a lot of the folks I work with are decades older than me. So my immediate reaction to your question actually is like, yeah, of course I wish I could go back in time, but I'm grateful to be doing these things so young. I feel like some people don't learn these lessons until they're 50s, 60s, 70s, right? Or find Buddhism or find environmental advocacy. And I'm grateful to be doing them now. I'm so glad that I exude a sense of patience because I don't feel that necessarily in my life. I think I can be quite impatient at times, but I know that the things we're working on when we're talking about systemic change or policy change for that, I'm sure you know takes years and years. And so, you know, I've been forced to cultivate patience just out of the regard for the work that we're doing here. But to my younger self, you know, I think just like many of us, my younger self was caught up too much in things that didn't matter. <laughs> just like we all had that middle, you know, in middle school, we're caring so much about what everyone thinks and what am I wearing? And, you know, so I wish to my younger self, I could I wish I had had a little more patience and could let them know that to look a little bit broader. I mean, certainly I've gotten there since here we, here we sit talking about these wonderfully broad issues, but yeah, that's a hard question for me to answer, Bob. You know, kind of on the patience, and I'd almost enter the term resilient in a lot of ways because we're so easily talking about your career and environmentalism and how great the movements you're leading are, which is, I think we could all talk about it for years, but from seeing you on this journey the last five, 10 years, I know that it wasn't as much of a walk in the park as we're kind of talking about in retrospect, because 
like you said, you're working with people that are decades older than you. And I think following your passion is something that a lot of people talk about and think about at the time. And obviously working in the environment, much less choosing to work in the environment five to 10 years ago was people didn't consider it as much of a earning potential career. I'd love to hear your firsthand story on what people responded with when you told them you were going to go save the environment as a eager 18 year old and what that process looked like working your way into such a prestigious position at the time being. Thanks, Aiden. Yeah, it's true. I It definitely has not been easy. So many people are like, just, it's just so cool. The environment's your passion. Like, I wish I had that. I don't have that guiding light. And so I almost don't know what to say sometimes to folks because I feel bad. It's always been so clear to me. I don't know how to explain it uh, other than I just felt this incredible draw to the natural world and to enjoying it and protecting it so that others could enjoy it. It's true that as a teenager, when I said I wanted to grow up to protect the environment, many people were like, oh, well, like you can volunteer on the weekends. I mean, but you're so smart. You should like go do something else maybe that makes more money, right? No one thinks of the nonprofit realm as somewhere that folks go to make money, certainly less so when I told people I wanted to go make documentaries. That is a, that's a lifelong begging for funding opportunity there. Um, so I knew my passion. And so for folks that are curious as to what their passion is, to that, I would say meditate. You know, I can't tell people what they care most deeply about, but you know, if you have something you care most deeply about, look at people who were, who were working in positions I would like to work in, or you know, there's tons of different tests and quizzes you can take out there to help identify, right? What do you bring to the table? What can you do that other people can't do as easily that you could really bring to the world? And for me, I love to talk to people and I love to engage people and I love to connect deeply with them and ultimately, ideally, have them join me in taking action. So for me, a career in this advocacy piece made sense and I didn't even know that was possible when I was younger. So I'm really passionate now about ensuring that high school students and college students know that this is a possibility, that this is a path that they can take. I know it sounds cliche, but it's cliche for a reason, and it's just don't give up. I was adamant that this was the way I wanted to spend my future. I didn't know how, and I didn't know in what way, but I knew that I wanted my full-time position to be dealing with the environment. And yes, plenty of people definitely told me, that's silly, Jess. Not everyone works in their dreams. You should just find a stable, well-paying job and you should just do some, you know, like extracurricular, right? In your evenings, do some, you know, on the side work. And it just was never a good enough answer for me. And I was dedicated enough. I refused to let that be the answer. And it was definitely hard. I took jobs that were low-paying. I worked long hours. I, you know, I'm grateful that my family was raised with a a work ethic. If you want to see change, you got to put in the work. Like it doesn't, nothing's handed to you. You don't get the chance. It doesn't just come about. And so I like actively sought out those opportunities and I put myself in rooms. If I didn't know what the opportunities were, I put myself in the rooms of people that did. I put myself in the rooms of people, you know, I went to talks just because and tried to not just go to the talk, but why don't you talk to the speakers afterwards? Or why don't you talk to some of the attendees about how it went? You know, I know COVID times make this more difficult, but, you know, no one does anything on their own. And you definitely on your own, you have to have that dedication. You have to commit to yourself 
that you are going to persevere and make it happen, but you should lean on your community to help as well, right? And you should meet those folks. And if you don't have those folks in your community, find places to make that. So for me, it was the environment, right? So making sure that I was meeting local leaders or local activists, right? And that's how I, that's how I am where I am now. I have this dream. I talked about it often. And to be honest, someone called me up and said, there is this opening and it is for you. This is the job you've been waiting for. And I, and I pounced on that and I called the executive director and I said, oh, we have to talk. I would, I would love to work for your organization. And, you know, even without a position there, I would hope that I would have had that same drive. Maybe the opportunity doesn't exist then, but you should make sure that those in your network know what your dream is because everywhere I am now yeah I wanted this but honestly like the first job I had someone sent it to me because they had heard me talk about it they were like they knew this was what I wanted to be in and they sent me my first the first job I took they sent me that job description and said this sounds like you Jeff and they wouldn't have known that if I hadn't communicated that to my people so be dedicated to it talk about it often meet people to talk about it with and and don't give up on it so that's awesome. I mean, I'm almost hearing being an activist for yourself, right? In a funny yes. way, like it's not only being an activist for the environment, but like being an activist for the life that you just wanted to create. Yes. Um, like self-advocacy, I think is just a fascinating concept. I was wondering if- Who else is going to do it for you? Mm -hmm. Who else is going to do that? Sorry to speak over you, Aiden, but Go who's going to advocate for the life Aiden wants? Nobody. Mm -hmm. You are. Yeah. And that coming comes full circle with a lot of the like health stuff we were talking about. Almost this conversation entirely. It's like- you have to put yourself first and speak up for not only the topics and I guess movements that you believe in, but what you personally want to believe in, what you personally want to do with your life. And I think your story speaks so elegantly to that of like people literally sent you these job positions and it's a funny balance of right. Like there, we've been talking a lot about the whole like manifesting ideas of like, Oh, just attract what you want to create kind of thing. Which sure, there's parts of that, but then also like there's tremendous action on both sides of it, you know? Like in your story, you knew what you wanted, you were talking about it, manifested it into having that job opportunity, but you still had to put in the work. You still called the director directly, didn't wait for the LinkedIn ad to show up or what have you. But I was wondering yeah. if you could like speak to that a little bit of kind of that balance of, I guess, intention and self-advocating for yourself and then putting in the work as well, kind of like taking those consistent action steps. I think you're absolutely right. I will I'll just say that I have some qualms with the words manifesting because I think I don't want to take away from the fact that people work hard for what they want, but that certainly privilege plays a role into it. And so too often I've seen the word manifesting, like it's like, oh, just manifest it. It's like, well, okay, there's a lot of barriers for a lot of people in that realms. But I think that it's still a critical piece of this, which is that, yeah, I think if there's something that you want, it's not just going to pop on your front door one day. That does not happen. You have to, like, yes, people sent me those job descriptions, but it was because I had worked for them. I had interned for them. I had been very explicit about my um, intention to work somehow in the space of environmental communication and advocacy. And I had to seek out those connections. I had to put in the work and lean on the connections that I had. But yes, at the same time, you know, some wonderful people in my life listened to me, number one, remembered it, right, and and helped bring that about. And there were some spaces I entered where I had you know, advocated for myself or tried to make those connections and it didn't work, right? Like the person, I don't know, didn't respond the next time or you have to stay persistent because not all avenues that you touch on will work out or not all people that you meet will ultimately 
be people in your network forever. I think the piece about self-advocacy is really resonating with me right now because, you know, tangentially to talk back to the health issues that I was having, you know, without getting into details, like there, even though I... I was barely an adult, like I had just turned 18. Um, you want to believe that doctors and nurses like know it all and, and have your best interests at heart. But truthfully, I actually, that experience also, I'm realizing right now, strengthened my ability to be an advocate for myself because there were actually several instances where my care was not taken care of properly. And eventually I was just so angered by it that like I learned that I had to become my own patient advocate um so that's like a very specific example of course and anyone listening like I would hope that you're always yes of course listening to what your doctors are saying but like also you know your body the best and like if you've got a doctor that's telling you that nothing's wrong and you feel like something is wrong like continue to advocate for yourself because I witnessed firsthand that that is necessary and that and I'm realizing now that that experience probably probably helped me practice my self-advocate muscles, so to speak, a little bit, because I had to ensure, yeah, of course the doctors are helping me to get better, but like, who cares about my health more than me? Probably no one. Like, I'm the person that wants to see the end result the most. And so there were times I had to remind doctors or ask for another test or take on some piece of advocating for the health and the future that I wanted to see. And so to that point, I can see how that experience helped me do that in other avenues of my life and helped advocate for myself. If folks have not started advocating for yourselves yet, I hope you start today. Like, what is the future you want? You know, Aiden, you referenced earlier, it's not going to happen if you don't plan it. Like, it's just not going to happen. So unless you're taking... The steps can be small, but you should try starting every day. So every day I write down four things. I'm like, what did I do for my mind today? What did I do for my body today? What did I do for my spirit? And what did I do to connect with the other humans in my life? So yeah, of course I care for my body, mind, and spirit. And I want to do that. But like, unless you're intentionally taking steps to further that, it's not just going to happen one day procrastinators and I used to be I used to be one I'm a recovering procrastinator believe it or not right and so you can say it's gonna happen tomorrow but like is it is it do you know it is right and so really taking an active role in building the future you want for yourself whether that's protecting your health whether that's searching for the job that you want or whether that's really getting in tune with your body mind and spirit to really help bring about the best you possible that the world deserves to see you know you just have to be really intentional about it that's what i have to say there now aiden and myself we always talk about we view everything as practice and the idea of neural pathways come to my mind right yeah, because it, to me it sounds like you were able to unknowingly develop a strong neural pathways in your brain to help you self-advocate like you were able yeah. to develop that self-advocacy muscles aka neural pathways and through your habitual practices of advocating for yourself to speak up for your own needs because maybe some doctors we do like to worship doctors but it's so complex right and doctors they're not gods so the fact that you were able to have that recognition early on into your life and became a early stage self-advocacy starting with your own health which evolved into this grander and more vast platform of environmental causes so that's very powerful uh, I want to ask you that 
I really resonate with when you talked about how, like, what are you doing to get there, right? And there is a pretty famous MMA fighter. His name is Timothy Kennedy. And he talks about how practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. As you were telling us about how manifestation is true, you know, in spite of the barriers and circumstances aside, you still have to make consistent effort towards the right path or the aligned path for it to truly be manifested, right? And the example I came up with is as a writer, the slogan or the advice people always throw around is just work hard, just work fucking hard and you'll be successful. And so the author could interpret that as, okay, I'll work hard. I'm going to read a lot of books to retrieve inspirations and ideas. But for an aspiring author, he or she could read all day, every day, and that's working hard because they're reading for their research. But if they're not writing a single page, he or she will never become a aspiring author, period. And I think um, that's the reason why I love these conversations, because how can you get to the bottom of an issue or a conversation or a topic without the full context? These headline focused advices that people throw around, like just work hard, just grind or just do that is so isolated and they negate the nuances, right? Like working hard is a baseline for sure, but you have to work hard towards a aligned path. Like we talked about with the example of aspiring authors, they can work hard all they want at reading, but that's not going to help them to become an author, right? Yeah. Uh, I share that to ask you a question of, so from your experience, working hard towards the right path aside, the consistent practices aside, they eventually gave you this opportunity to give you the audacity to almost require and demand a job from the director. That itself is a date. I mean, that itself is, I want to applaud you for a second. It's like, damn, like you had the audacity as someone who doesn't even work in the company, who doesn't even have a job or connections. You're like, you know what? Give me this job. I deserve this. But obviously we talk about the power of storytelling. You don't only practice what you preach. You preach what you practice. I think there's a huge difference there. And to me, it sounds like the director and people around you saw that light, saw that spark, saw that drive in you. So I'm sure you're grateful for that as well. But so from your experiences as the director, uh, as a field director in two organizations, and I know you were also newly elected as the newest chair into the environmental agency in Chester County, which is a huge congratulations to you on the mic. If you were to come up with a portfolio of some of the most resilience characteristics that you saw in your personal experiences or for some of the volunteers and staff you help manage day to day, what would that list look like? You, you're asking for a list of qualities that I see in myself or volunteers that elicit resiliency. Either attributing to a resiliency or that you've seen that are necessitates some of more successful candidates in your work. Because as we talked about, sure. policy and advocacy is such a convoluted and complex field. I'm just interested from your perspective as a director, what are some of the list of qualifications that you saw that separated from resilient staff or more successful staff from just a ordinary volunteers who maybe don't necessarily last too long in, in the tough field as it is? Sure. So the first things that come to mind are, number one, we have to embrace that change is possible and that change is the only constant. You first have to be coming from a place, whether it's for your own career, for changing policy, for hoping to mitigate a climate crisis, right? Like you have to come from a place of possibilities. And I think that in line with that, you know, a key piece of resiliency that I've seen in others 
and and seen in myself is the knowledge that whatever's happening right now will not last. And so you might come across an incredibly difficult time like this damn pandemic that we're in. And the only way through it is remembering like that key piece of remembering that this too will pass. And I know that that's such a cliche phrase, but I think it's such a critical piece of resiliency is knowing that whatever comes your way, it will be so incredibly difficult to remember in the depths of the hardest times that you're going through, but knowing that it will pass. And if possible, knowing that it will actually be an opportunity for change for you. I think like the most resilient people that I know, yeah, challenges suck and life will come at you hard and fast. And if possible, it will be so difficult in that deeply emotional state you likely will be in. But if you are able to, at least in some corner of your mind, remember that actually this hard time will help you grow. If you take on challenges as a growth opportunity, that is one of the key pieces I think that I've seen in resilient people that has helped them get to the place or become more resilient. If you can change your mindset to understanding that, I think your life will change within months, honestly, almost within weeks. If you start looking at every challenge as an opportunity, either to find a solution or to grow. I think some of the other key qualities we've touched on already, like persistence, necessary. And that doesn't mean every single day you show up, but that means that if you don't show up one day, you don't stop showing up. You recognize that that was just a day and then you get back on the horse and you keep going or like utter dedication to that cause, whatever it may be. Environment might not be your cause. That's fine. What is it? What do you care about in this world? And I promise you, even if it's not your full-time job or even if you have no idea where to start, or even if you only have a half hour a month to put in, I promise you that there's something that you can do to help elicit change in that. So dedicating and committing yourself to, to the change that you want to see are some of the key things that I've seen in the most resilient people I know. Yeah, so well said and such an important reframe. The phrase that we've alluded to that idea of is employing hindsight as foresight. And I kind of like try and recognize it in real time because I think everyone, like we all realize that our challenging times reveal lessons once we're through the challenge. But the point that you're pointing out is to recognize it in the present. Again, coming back to the present moment of like, yo, if shit's really hard, kind of like have a siren go off of like, all right, I'm going to grow a lot here. Things are going to change a lot, like almost as like a celebration a little bit. And again, easier said than done for sure. But that's something that I've like really tried to be embracing around past two months specifically, just as a kind of quick aside, but I think it's too relevant to not share is I've been working till 930 the last two months and Ben kind of like called me. He's like, oh, like, how are you hanging in there? I was like, well, this is what I do all this self-development stuff for, like kind of like practice what I preach a little bit. And like that, as much as I hate being at the office at 915, it's like, this is what I do that for a little bit and kind of trying to reframe it of like, I'm going to take a lot of lessons away from this experience as a whole. So I just really want to kind of echo that point because it's, again, easier said than done in taking the lessons away in real time. But I think it's just such a powerful like reframe slash perspective around just facing challenge, cultivating resilience. And I think those two things are so fundamental to the 
year that 2020 has been and kind of the aftermath that we're still in, I, I think a lot of people have developed resilience that they hadn't otherwise seen in these past two years for, you know, a lot of reasons. Yeah. If I could touch on, on two things really quickly on that. One thing that comes to mind is, is what Ben referenced earlier, neural pathways. You know, these types of skills or qualities, you know, nobody's necessarily born with. Maybe some are born with the tendency to do it more than others, but it's possible to kind of retrain your brain to take on challenges as opportunities. Even if you just have to put a post-it on your wall and stare at it every day for a year, telling you that challenges are actually opportunities, if you just start somewhere, then as you grow, that mindset will start to become a part of your perspective. And it's really important to kind of build, right? That neural pathway might not exist right now, but it could. And it'll only start with the practice of you recognizing that day in and day out. And so maybe you're going through something right now and there's like no corner. Maybe you're listening to this and you're like, there is no way that this is an opportunity for me. Like this sucks. That's fine. I would challenge the person to come back in a couple months and see like, truly, did you grow from this opportunity? But you might not be able to see it now, but if you practice that, if you practice looking back on your past challenges and trying to pick out what positively came out of that, and then moving forward, using that practice, building those neural pathways, I promise you, you will be able to move forward towards future challenges and have maybe a slightly different mindset about it. And then the next piece that came to mind, which is kind of wrapping together a couple of pieces of what we've talked about so far, and this is of no offense to YouTube, but I think that, that these types of mindsets and, and also the idea of self-advocating can be incredibly difficult for women specifically because we are so trained truly with societal expectations to make ourselves smaller. You know, it's only very recently in our society that women have even had the opportunity to join the workforce and have the opportunity to build the lives that, that they desire rather than the ones that they were told to build, right? And so it's not lost on me that the things we're talking about, yes, everyone should do them, everyone. And, and I hope that folks take the lessons to heart, but women especially, Oh man, if I, again, if we didn't have a climate crisis on our hands, you could either find me in like journalism or working to empower women, because I think that they are at such a deficit for some of these key life mindsets that men have practiced for centuries, practically, right? Like taking off, you know, building the life you want, right? Grabbing the job that you want to do. And women were so ultimately in the, in the scheme of time, so new to it all. And also just so taught to maybe focus on things that are little less important but superficial perhaps right imagine all the industries that would die if women accepted every part of their body as fantastic and, and normal and awesome right and also you know how much time and space and money do we take up like thinking of these things rather than thinking about the lives we could build or the potential that we could reach or the challenges we could take on as opportunities and so being one self-advocate or taking on these mindsets is critical for anyone and I just want to make the note while we celebrate Women's History Month that especially women you know I think could really benefit and deserve to to think about to take these mindsets to heart and think about them day to day yeah I really appreciate you pointing that out and I've been having a lot of conversations with like my fellow men friends right because I think in terms of the, like, of course, one of the intention with interviewing you is to help promote women's voice, to empower the voices in light of Women's History Month, just like we did similar things for Black History Month for February. 
And because I do think it is up to the responsibilities, the collective responsibility of those who are more privileged to uplift those who are oppressed. I think the responsibility falls onto us. That's why I do think that billionaires should also take on more responsibilities in the same way, because as cliche as it sounds, great power comes with great responsibilities, right? Because I do yeah. think all cliches are tropes. And I didn't even think about this earlier when we first talked about self-efficacy, but I realized the avenue, the lack thereof, self-efficacy is so prevalent for both men and women. Like you talked about on a societal level, like the detriments of patriarchy is very obvious for the woman. Like there is no dispute. You see the both intended and unintended consequences of patriarchy, how woman as a whole was oppressed. But I think the unintended side that men and women don't see or the society overlooks is how that also oppresses men in terms of self-efficacy. Because like for patriarchy to put masculinity on a pedestal, all the boys growing up, we were accustomed to the framework of how men ought to behave or what men should behave or what a manly man looks like, the machoism, everything in between. I had two friends in the past three months lost their grandparents. And there are both, uh, one's an African-American and one's a, uh, he's my brown friend, but he's, he's Muslim, he's Arabic. And so they're very culturally tied to their grandparents. And the first thing I told them is don't rush with your grieving process. Like sit in that space, sit in that anger, because I'm sure they feel a little bit of injustice. Like it's not fair. Why is it their grandparents? I asked them and I urged them to sit in that anger, sit in that grief, sit in that sadness for as long as it takes. You know, you don't want to dwell for too long, but sit in that space because you can't process without first acknowledging that feeling first. And even a step above that, if you have the humility and if you have the awareness to sit in that space, when you're processing the emotion, if it's too much for you, seek help. But in my nonprofit policy sector, in my work with my clients, the biggest frustration that I have is when I have a a wide array of resources that's readily available to support my clients in their endeavors, there's so much resistance, right? And I used to get frustrated, I used to take it personally, but of course, I have to constantly remind myself it's not about me, it's about them. But I came up with an epiphany a while back, I realized that there was a resistance because for a client or for anyone, for our friends, for our family members who we love, who we want to help empower and change, for them to seek help, they have to first acknowledge that they need help. That is the greatest barrier. That is why most people don't ask for help because they have to first acknowledge that they need one. And in terms of for this token of self-efficacy, I don't want to take away from what you said, right? I do 100% think that us as men have to do more to help empower women's voices, to help uplift them, to give them more space to advocate for themselves. But also in terms of self-efficacy aspect, men are not good at self-advocating, especially with emotional stuff. Like we want to take on... The burden for both us and the partners. We want to fight the world. We want to be all man and all that. But we're literally dying inside. Like there's so many men literally uh, dying because of depression, suicidal ideations. And like people, men are dying because they don't know how to self-advocate. So I wanted to highlight that for everyone that it is the most important and the baseline that you have to advocate for yourself first and foremost. I really appreciate you bringing that up because you're absolutely right in that we're all suffering from the effects of centuries of patriarchy. And yes, of course, it oppresses women. And of course, you know, women have, have suffered negatively at the hands of patriarchy for years. Yeah, absolutely. The point should not be lost. that patriarchy is also a detriment for men. Absolutely, right? Like, I, it is not healthy or fair 
or for us to expect men to not feel the very natural human thing that are emotions and not showcase them. I hate that for men. I hate the resistance that, you know, that men feel, especially when we talk, start talking about therapy, there is so much resistance to like you're talking about, like admitting that you need help is that first piece there. And I do think that toxic masculinity, you know, encourages men, unfortunately, to be, you know, this macho man that doesn't need help, that doesn't need to cry, that doesn't have emotions, like that's unrealistic and unhealthy. And I think that that does play into some of the absolutely the negative effects that we're feeling from the patriarchy right now. And I really appreciate you bringing those up. And in light of celebration and in light of promoting women's voices, I want to use this opportunity to promote your achievement, right? You disclosed to us that you were voted into the main lines, next gen 15 under 30. And, um, and obviously all of us, like you shared, all of us have that secret dream of being onto one of those lists, right? Like Forbes 30 under 30. I have two more years to get there. But for us having the privilege of interviewing someone like you with the caliber, with the experiences, and most recently your achievement being voted onto that list. I want to celebrate that with you, but also I want to ask you to elaborate on that experience and how you felt afterwards. You're very sweet. Well, thank you, first of all, for um, for acknowledging it. Yeah, it was, you know, it's a small, cute thing for those of us that are from Delaware County. You might know the publication, Mainline Mind Today. They're a nice community publication. You know, I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but somehow my name got onto one of these lists, and it was a really exciting uh, and inspiring endeavor because you know I'm still as of right now still under 30 not 30 till December of this year but I was certainly one of the older ones right in this list of 15 under 30 and it was really exciting to meet some of these other young minds that are you know changing the world in a lot of different ways right I know I met a woman who's you know, got a new program for people with special needs in Wallingford. And I met another woman who's also working on climate change and is using her art to help bring awareness around it. I mean, there really was just a really great spread of young people doing some really incredible things. And I think, you know, it's a shame. I'm not sure what the systemic ideals we're upholding that perpetuate this, but I think a lot of the time we do kind of toss to the side what young people think we're like oh they're young and naive and you know what do they know kind of thing but truly you know when we were speaking earlier about the solutions we need to change the world I have no doubt that some of those solutions will come from the young minds come growing up in our next generations right and of course we absolutely need the wisdom of our elders and we need everyone at the table but we also need young people there and so it was an honor to be included on that list and and to also meet the the people that i was chosen alongside of um who are you know using their passions and their new vision and uh, on the world to help solve some of our biggest issues and so we shouldn't throw youth voices and ideas to the side um I was 28 and I was nominated, but like there was a 14 year old there, right? Like I'm talking like we really should give the space and um, legitimacy that youth voices and ideas deserve. Definitely. That's a great point. I mean, it really just feels like dismissing any voice is a disservice, right? Like every, especially as I think so many different communities are all kind of shifting together, right? We're able to communicate and connect with people of all over the world, people of all ages. I mean, I think Ben was telling me about a clubhouse room he was just in and there's like people of all ages just kind of across the world. Um, it's really important to kind of elevate those voices regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of age. Uh, but really bringing all of those voices together, I think, is 
really where a lot of the solutions lie, as we've kind of discussed over the last couple hours. As we're kind of beginning to close things up a little bit, we want to pose a question that we ask a all of our guests, but in a bit of a hybrid way based on the celebration of Women's History Month. So you mentioned that if you weren't working for the environment, you would be working for women's empowerment. So let's play out that scenario a little bit. And if you had a mentorship program for females coming out of college, coming out of high school, just early adult days, what are big pieces of advice you'd give them around female empowerment or anything life advice? Love this. I will say I'm a little ahead of the game. I forgot to mention to you guys that I had the cool experience of being an environmental advisor for um, high school aged women at GirlGov, which is a really exciting program in Chester County that um, engages high school women who are interested in the civic engagement, civic participation, and helps to teach them the tools that they need. So I'm cheating a little bit because I did get the chance to do this slightly, but if I could, as you say, have a mentorship program for young women specifically, first and foremost, women are sadly assaulted, well, one, physically, a day in and day out, and that needs to be a key thing that we focus on as we try to move past patriarchy, but also by the media with images that are unrealistic. And as I was alluding to earlier, like too often, I know far too many brilliant, amazing women. Minds are sadly filled with thoughts that they don't look right, that they're not deserving of space and time and, you know, to, to share their ideas, that they need to change something about themselves. And I don't know how we can empower women to do more with their lives until we can get them past that terrible superficial part, right? Like human bodies are ultimately vastly different. Photoshop should go die, right? We cannot post these literally unreal pictures of women and then expect them to not psychologically affect us. Like I will catch myself to this day, right? Like, you know, and I'm sure as men that you suffer from it as well, like there is this definitely like toxic macho man ideal, but women especially, I mean, oh my gosh, get, so first and foremost, like what I would want to impress on them is like, you are beautiful and great just the way you are. Like you are made to perfection. You don't need to change anything. Like, please, like if you want to wear makeup, fine, but otherwise like throw it out. Don't, who cares? Like. First and foremost, I think women should have the freedom of enjoying who they are so that they can then take that mental space and time and focus it on on their passions and what they'd really like. And I think secondly, it is really important that women learn that their voice is important and valued, right? Too often, you know, you can see it when you look at the makeup of our government. Who's at the table? Who's in the room? It's old white men, ultimately. Like, ultimately, right? Like, that. it is like our population is so diverse. We are half men, half women. There are so many different colors of humans. And yet, when you look at the people who are in charge, whether it's at our government, whether it's CEOs, top Fortune 500s, it's not us. And so if you can't, you know, see yourself literally at one of those positions, how can you even think of that as a possibility in your mind? And how can you think that that's something that you deserve to be taking part in? And so, you know, if we can first 
get everyone to accept themselves and like wrangle with that so that we can then focus on the future and making sure that women feel like they do deserve to be heard. They do deserve to be at every table. There should not just be a table of men deciding what our birth control systems look like. That is unrealistic and frankly unbelievable. Um, And so those are some of the key things that I would want to make sure women of any age, but especially in that, you know, that age of high development and growth coming out of high school and college, I think are really important lessons for folks to take away that I think, you know, if we could get, if we could get that into high school education, you know, I can only imagine the power that we would unleash for, for future generations of women. Yeah. So you're telling me you don't have that picture perfect waistline and you don't have that perfect body image. I definitely want to yeah. echo that sentiment because I definitely don't look like Brad Pitt in a poster 24-7. Only Brad Pitt does. (laughs) Only he does. And even then, it's probably Photoshopped and touched up. So, like, he probably doesn't even look like the Brad Pitt we think of, you know? Yeah, I I think it's like when you give into the conformity of, you know, sensitive issue like body image, the more you do it, the more we get desensitized to that, right? And it almost becomes normalized into our subconsciousness. I think that is the dangerous part. As you're, you know your call to action with a little bit of like venting about the current systematic changes that needs to be (laughs) had. The song from Donald Glover, This Is America, came into my mind instantly. And I shared that song because he portrayed that extremely power imagery through the video and very powerful lyrics through the perspective of Black Americans, right? Because to them, this is America. But then if you talk to the white men who's in charge, who's in the government, who is in the decision-making table, who is in the Fortune 50 companies, if you ask them what their version of America is, I'm sure they're going to depict an entirely different imagery of this is America and their versions. And that's something that I think all of us have to grapple with is the nuances. Just because we all live in the same country, the same continent, the the same zip code, that doesn't mean we have the same experiences. And that is something, one of the many ethos that we're trying to embody through this platform is to speak with the collectives and to peer into their individual experiences because collective experiences are comprised of individual experiences. And I think the best way to fight against our own confirmation biases and groupthink biases is by talking to people who don't look like us, right? Like you as a woman, we're very different on a biological level. And obviously we have different thought processes and you know, thought patterns. And I think by talking to great guests like yourself from all walks of life, we can expand our intellectual diversity and expand our scope of understanding little by little every single weekend. And hopefully that is the intention that you know listeners could also take away from this conversation is that like talk to people, try to expand your horizon of understanding because it is a very vast world and with so much nuances that it will take you literally the entire life to do so. Um, so with that being said, since we talked about ethos, the question we always end the episode with is we want to A, challenge you as the guest of this week to discover more something about in your life, whether it's in your career or as in your personal life. And you can make that about Women's History Month or not. That's up to you. And B, for you to challenge our listeners after listening to this amazing episode with you, what are some areas of their lives that you'd like to encourage them to seek and to discover more about? Awesome. Well, let's see. So to answer your first question... I love being challenged and I think I do want to do something in light of Women's History Month and what I've realized actually in talking through all this, you know, just because I'm currently focusing on the environment 
doesn't mean I can't focus on my other passions as well. And so I kind of want to challenge myself, you know, advising Girl Gov was a really cool experience. And so I'm curious you know, I don't have to stay in one lane. I'd like to challenge myself in the next year to think of how else can I help empower women in the place I'm at currently. It doesn't mean it's not an either or thing. So I think that's what I want to push myself personally to do. Just because I'm focusing on environmental advocacy doesn't mean I can't also work on my passion of empowering women and girls. So that's what I think I would like to discover more about in the next year and push myself. And then the listeners... The thing that I would like to every single person that like I come across in life to ever take away and, and hopefully take to heart and do is really what makes a person come alive. The quote from Howard Thurman always comes back to me is don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it because the world needs more people who have come alive. And so I think that anyone who's listening to this, if they have not already you know, at least researched and looked into their passion and like, and what they absolutely love to do, even if it's not a career move at this point, but like, are you spending your evenings and weekends coming alive? Like, or are you just like hanging out in front of the TV and just kind of trying to recover from the other parts of your life, right? That's no life to live. You know, you should find out what really sounds like what really makes you come alive. And it sounds like both of you have followed that path in a way or another, right? And found found what didn't make you come alive, right? And then also identify what is it that you're truly passionate about. And so I know it might seem cliche and it definitely takes some digging for some. It doesn't come that naturally, but what is it that, you know, you only have so many revolutions around the sun. You might as well spend them doing something that you really love and so I'd really challenge our listeners especially women women you are awesome your voice deserves to be heard like you I don't care what anyone especially any man no offense Aiden and and Ben say like you deserve to be heard and so especially women go follow your passions but everyone everyone should find what makes them come alive and and go after it no matter what absolutely yeah so well said a bit of a mic drop moment of you know the world needs more people that have come alive Uh, Definitely appreciate that advice. Certainly I'll be bringing it into my own life and I hope the listeners do as well. So as we're coming to a close, I was wondering if you could just let listeners know how they can connect with you, maybe support some of the organizations that you're involved in, or even how they can connect with you personally if they have questions about the environment, life, or anything in between. Yeah, definitely. Um, So absolutely, whether you decide to go support a different environmental organization or one of the ones that I have the honor of working for, you should definitely try to find, uh, check out Conservation Voters of PA on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Usually our handles are Conservation PA. Come Future, another great environmental advocacy organization. Find them in the same places. I would be remiss, of course, if I didn't mention, since I do oversee our organizing programs, that if there's any element of you that even thinks you want to get involved with the environment or anything that we've talked about that you'd like to chat about, absolutely get in touch with me. My email is jess, J-E-S-S, at conservationpa.org. Super easy. Um, I will absolutely, I'd love to touch base. If you're thinking that you want to try and help the environment, I can definitely connect you with what you're passionate about. Or even if you'd just like to chat about anything that was said today, I'm more than happy to connect with anyone. I myself also happen to be on Facebook, Instagram, really don't use Twitter that much, but just Catteret, 
it's a kind of weird last name, but I'm sure it's spelled somewhere in the title or bio. You can find it and search me. I'd love to connect. Connecting with humans is fantastic. I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing in this podcast, and I've absolutely loved chatting with you today. So thanks so much, you guys. Likewise, Jess, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I uh, appreciate the good words, and hopefully everyone has a chance to connect with you and learn some valuable lessons from this amazing chat. Yeah, as always, we will include all of Jess's information below so you can connect with her individually speaking. I just want to riff on what you just talked about, right? Like seek your spark and embrace your purpose almost. Um, I really appreciate what you talked about, like, you know, lean into your spark, you know, embrace that spark, just like you have so, you know, being such a young and accomplished field director as 29, not 30 yet. Yeah, with that being said, I appreciate all the listeners for being patient with this episode and joining us until the end. And as always, appreciate everyone for discovering more this week and hope to see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.